0: Addicts have included persons in every walk of life. Some are petty criminals who will remain drug addicts all their lives. Many addicts come from teeming slum areas where human misery runs high. But the grim specters of heroin, marijuana, and cocaine are not confined to any area or to any group. Wherever there is a troubled personality, no matter how hidden or unrecognized, there may be a seedbed for drug addiction. I think it's safe to say the drug war is over And the truth is we all lost The government lost billions of tax dollars And countless man hours with little to no results Innocent people lost their lives In the deadly crossfire of gangs waging war Over drug empires But one of the most visible and tragic victims Of our failed war on drugs Are what we commonly refer to as junkies Those poor souls whose addictions to these illicit poisons are so strong they'll do anything to feed them. And throughout history, these individuals have been treated by our culture as everything from villains to victims or just plain invisible. But what about the movie? How has cinema presented drug addicts And over the last century of celluloid? Join us today in the season six premiere of Slums of Film History to find out. So get comfortable, grab your cooking spoon, your rubber band, and your needle, and chase that dragon with us today as we join the Scourge of the Junkies.
1: Of film history, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in depth look into a niche topic
0: of film that is normally not discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from evil dolls to murderous twins to aborted baby toxic waste monsters. If there's a film subject too taboo we haven't found it yet. Welcome. hey slate hi tom how's it going good how are you oh man i'm great it's good to be back i know it is it is we complain a lot but (laughs) yeah it's good to be back it is good to be back (laughs) i haven't been back here since christmas which was i know your favorite episode that that was the worst (laughs) i almost didn't do the next season (laughs) just because of that you're like i quit I'm not doing this anymore. I didn't even listen to it. (laughs) I know you didn't listen to it. (laughs) God, you suck so bad. But anyway, welcome back, everybody. And like I said, it's good to be back. So what's been up with you, Slate? Yeah, so it's been a lot, kind of.
1: So basically, right at the end of season five, I quit my job and decided to go freelance so that I could travel the world and do a bunch of other creative projects. And basically, I just started getting booked immediately. And so I've had no time to... I went to Japan. I guess that was cool. Yeah. But anyway, so I've been kind of a little busier than I was when I was working full time, which is why there is essentially no book. That book that I convinced you to write, then I had to put that on hold because a big project kind of fell in my lap. And I'm still trying to figure out how to get it all done. But we decided that we would put the book on hold and we would do season six. I still really want to do the book, but I can't really commit to it at this second because of
0: big giant project, which I can't talk about so yeah that doesn't mean that we're not going to do a book it just means it's on hold for now But the good news is that I got what I wanted, which was a season six. Yeah. So that's what's really important is that I got what I want. And so to get started, today's episode is called Scourge of the Junkies. Mm -hmm. Very much a mirror title to my second episode I ever did called Scourge of the Homeless. Yep. And the reason I named it that is because it's a trope. It's a movie trope that I examined very similar to Scourge of the Homeless in that, you know, take a certain character and see how it's changed or morphed or how it's been represented in film over time. There's a lot of parallels between this and my homeless episode. So this made sense to just kind of loop it back around. So that's my jumping off point for this episode. Okay, so to start off, I'm going to define what a junkie is. So as defined by Merriam-Webster, a junkie is a narcotics peddler or addict. And it was first used in this context in 1923. The term originated to refer people who were hooked on junk, also a nickname for heroin. Mm -hmm. There you go. So with that being said, I'm going to exclude alcohol and marijuana from this episode, for the most part. Actually, I do bring them up a little bit, but that's not the focus, as well as any other addictions that the term junkie is now used for. So in other words, if you're a sports junkie or whatever, that's not what I'm talking about. Right, right. But I will include cocaine and other hard drugs. Please do. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm going to be inclusive on that, and I knew you'd be happy to hear about all that stuff. So we're going to begin this topic in the Victorian England era, during the latter half of the 1800s, because hard drug use was looked at differently than it is now. Oh, really? Yeah, because narcotics of all sorts were freely available. Opiates were an active ingredient in a lot of medicines, and so all this shit was over the counter. Even Encyclopedia Britannica's 1888 edition claims that addiction to narcotics happens chiefly in individuals of weak willpower who would just as easily become the victims of intoxicating drinks and who are practically moral imbeciles, Addicted also to other forms of depravity. So that was a viewpoint. You could get drugs anywhere, but the idea of addiction was that poor people did that, and dumb people, and people mm. that were just lower class. Uh-huh, That's how you sure, to look sure. at it. So it was a totally different viewpoint than we have today. So that being said, the first pop culture junkie I could find that relates to that era mm-hmm. is none other than Sherlock Holmes, the oh, great really? detective. Yeah, oh. yeah. A lot of people don't know this. Sherlock Holmes actually was a fairly heavy cocaine user for a lot of his stories. Yeah, he injected it. What was known as a seven percent solution. And he injected it. Yeah, he didn't so, do it right. That's not the way you do that. I know. I know. These people are fucking Sherlock, dumb dumb. You think he'd what know a better? Dumb dumb. Because he's like supposed to be a genius. For those of you who don't know, so Sherlock Holmes, the character, first appeared. In the book The Study in Scarlet, that was published in 1887. And that's where he met Dr. Watson, and they all had, you know, started having adventures and shit. But it was the second book called The Sign of Four that was published in 1890, where we first learn of Holmes's recreational use of cocaine. Dr. Watson, who's the narrator of pretty much all the books, first mentions that at the time Holmes was injecting that 7% solution intravenously three times a day. Apparently, wow. that's a good bit of Coke. And Watson, who is also a medical doctor, wasn't thrilled about this drug use. And we'll discuss that in a second. Huh. Sherlock Holmes knew cocaine was bad for him physically, but he found it, quote unquote, transcendentally stimulating and clarifying to the mind. Yeah, duh. Yeah, yeah, big shock. However, he didn't use it when he was working on a case, only to alleviate boredom when he didn't have anything else that was stimulating him mentally. So, Mm -hmm. In one of the later cases called The Adventure of the Missing Three-Quarter, Watson refers to a drug mania that had threatened Holmes' career. So apparently he had some sort of episode that was mentioned in there. Eventually, he had kicked the habit... But what's interesting here is he says the fiend was not dead, but sleeping. So Holmes at one time was a full on junkie, apparently that almost ruined his career. But what's interesting to note, and even in the 1800s in these books, you know, the idea that an addict is always an addict right. was put in here. And that's huh. something that I think higher society for a while viewed as not as a weakness to somebody, but right. not, you know, if you have strong will, you can overcome it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even Sherlock Holmes is a fucking junkie and he'll always be one. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. We'll revisit Sherlock Holmes later on. He pops back up throughout this episode. But I want to kind of pull back and, again, reflect on the view of all this drug use at the end of the 19th century. As I mentioned, the UK dismissed it as a lower class problem. And in fact, like I said, you could find opium and all these hard drugs in pharmacies. And also, not only that, but since all these medicines have it, a lot of people didn't really know that they were taking opiates. Mm -hmm. So up until the early 1900s, you didn't even have to put the ingredients on medicines. Like you didn't have to label them. But in the early 1900s, laws were being acted that required that you had to label stuff. Also, an interesting thing at the end of the century is that a lot of junkies in the States were former soldiers because they would come back from the Civil War Mm -hmm. with injuries and things like that. They were actually given opium pills to deal with that. Right. So you had a bunch of junkies that were former soldiers. You also had, again, the problem where addicts were taking medicines they didn't realize were making them addicted. and. At the end of the century, one of the biggest group of junkies were women, Mm -hmm. because doctors would prescribe them this medicine that had morphine and everything in it. And they would prescribe a morphine to relieve menstrual cramps, diseases of nervous character, that's Mm -hmm. one of the things, and even morning sickness. So, of course, overuse would bring addiction.
1: They were like, you're pregnant and you threw up in the morning, we'll give you opiates. I mean, yeah. Yeah.
0: So moving on, in a nutshell, drugs were rampant and everyone used them, whether they realized it or not, but there was kind of a change, a sea change a little bit in that, hey, this may be a problem. We should take some care and dealing with that. And so steps would be taken such as, and I mentioned in early 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act would make it so that you had to label the stuff. And then the Harrison Tax Act in 1914 would restrict the sale of heroin so that it wasn't like readily available. Uh Same with cocaine. All right. So the first movie I could find that dealt with any type of drug use was called The Pipe Dream from 1905. Mm -hmm. Now, the film's title seems like a slight misnomer because there's no actual pipe in The Pipe Dream. It Mm -hmm. sounds like, oh, they're hitting a crack pipe or something, but there's Mm -hmm. nothing in that. Instead, it's a 45-second clip that shows a woman puffing on what looks like a joint. She starts blowing smoke into her hand, and then it turns into, like, a little miniature person in her palm, and I guess it's talking to her or whatever. That's cool. Yeah, and the the effect is pretty decent, actually. I saw it. You can find it online. It's a plotless film. It's really short. It looks more like a special effects demo reel for the early Mm -hmm. 1900s but it's pretty cool yeah but again it's suggesting she's high as fuck seeing some miniature person right the next film that i want to talk about and i didn't even know anything about this but uh these films kind of were in the early 10s and 20s and they're known as cokey comedies have you ever heard of these films no, not, never yeah it's a group of films that take cocaine and like it's like a comedy film that has like a cocaine type of element Okay. Yeah. And the first one I could find was called The Mystery of the Leaping Fish. Have you ever heard of this? No. Okay, so apparently it was popular at the time. It starred Douglas Fairbanks as this detective name. Wait for it. Coke Any Day coke any day that was his name yeah his first name uh-huh. was coke and his last name was any day e-n-n-y day i hate that i know <laughs> and his character is basically a parody of sherlock holmes see how i drug that back in mm-hmm. and so he walks around with these row of syringes strapped to his chest presumably so he can just shoot up cocaine whenever the urge hits him uh-huh apparently uh, shooting up cocaine was, was the method yeah. of okay. taking it right. back then i G- got it got yeah I, that's I'm weird to get, me just get on board with that I guess. yeah yeah you just gotta jump on that
1: i thought the snorting it is the most fun part right? i mean
0: I, yeah and i feel like sharing needles well, they didn't have AIDS back then, but still, it's just, uh, yeah. yeah, it's disgusting. But if that's not bad enough, he also has this big tub of cocaine on his desk mm-hmm. that says cocaine on it, in case you didn't know what it was, and he'd like, well, get it and rub it all over his face. Oh, that's the dream. I and- know. <laughs> yeah. Slate's really just like looking off in space, reminiscing like, about drooling. this right now. <laughs> <laughs> and he has a clock on the wall that has like four settings. One of them's like, eats, drinks, sleep, and then dope. Which I actually want that clock. It's kind of amazing, honest. yeah. But the movie's nuts. And it still exists on YouTube. We'll put it on the site. But yeah, it's this a slapsticky comedy. It's huh. Fucking nuts. Cookie comedies. <laughs> yeah. I guess yeah. that's the thing. So fun fact on that, you know, Douglas Fairbanks was probably one of the most popular actors of that time. So you've got... That kind of clout in this movie. Right. But also, the movie was written by Todd Browning, who wrote Freaks and Dracula. Yeah, my favorite guy ever. Yeah. And there's an uncredited D.W. Griffith, who did some work on this as well. So, there's some pedigree behind this Cokie comedy movie. But this isn't the only one. There's a whole bunch of these. And I want to talk about the next one. The next one is called Easy Street, and that's a Charlie Chaplin film from 1917. So in this movie, Charlie Chaplin becomes a beat cop, and of course, hijinks ensue in the normal way that Charlie Chaplin Little Tramp films go. Mm -hmm. The main plot of the movie, though, is that Charlie has to rescue his girlfriend from the clutches of a dastardly junkie things are going badly for him because he's getting his ass kicked until he accidentally sits down on one of the bad guys upturned syringes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Instantly, he's transformed into a tower of strength and beats the shit out of the bad guy and rescues the damsel in distress. What a message. Yeah, I know. So things to note in regards to how junkies are viewed in this movie. So essentially, when the bad guy junkie like injects cocaine, he becomes this like mustache twirling bad guy that's going to victimize this girl. Whereas like when Charlie Chaplin gets it, he basically becomes Popeye except instead of spinach, it's cocaine. And he like beats up like Like every fucking buddy. Mm -hmm. And of course all (laughs) the drug use stuff is played for laughs. Right. It's a comedy. I laughed. I did too. It's great. And just a few more to note: cokey comedy type of movies. There's one called Get Out and Get Under from 1920, and it stars Harold Lloyd as a guy who's driving his jalopy, and it breaks down. He notices a junkie shooting up, so he basically robs that guy for his drugs, puts it in his car, and his car like starts hauling ass and jumping around and doing all this crazy stuff. It's like chitty chitty bang bang on crack. Yeah,
1: but <laughs> it sounds like we're still talking about cocaine though, yeah. Like yeah, yeah injecting.
0: Yeah. Because if you put a bunch of heroin in the car, it's going to be like, yeah, this is yeah. gonna, yeah. It's going to nod off. Yeah, it's still cocaine. And then one more, from also from 1920, is called The Flying Cop, in which this guy is seen ingesting cocaine again and then literally like floats across the room impervious to pain. Mm -hmm. So the theme here being cocaine turns into a superhero, pretty Uh much, and it's played for laughs. Okay. Now, on that note, just to give you the other side of the coin, there are some movies that came out at that time period that did show the darker side of drug use. So there's one from 1912, and this one is a D.W. Griffith-directed film called For His Son, and this movie was inspired by Coca-Cola's history, where a man invents a soft drink laced with cocaine. In the movie, it's called Coke. (laughs) And in order to earn enough money to ensure his son's future, he does what he does. But unfortunately, his son ends up hopelessly addicted to Dopa Coke and tragedy ensues. Mm-hmm. Uh, next one's called The Black Fear, and it was basically a Reefer Madness type of story at its time. We'll talk about Reefer Madness a little bit on, but it's the same thing. But the plot is this evil boss forces cocaine on his young employees. And then in 1923, Dorothy Davenport, whose husband, actor Wallace Reed, died of drug addiction, produced the movie Human Wreckage, an anti-drug movie that was considered so graphic for its time that it ended up being banned from being shown in England. I know that movie. Do you? Mm-hmm. You must remember this did a big thing on it. Oh, wow. On, wow. Okay. There, yeah. So, fun fact, on January 14, 1923, William H. Hayes was appointed as president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America just four days before Wallace Reed died. The reason I bring up that fun fact about William H. Hayes is because I wanted to talk about the Hayes Code for a second. So, the Hayes Code was enacted around 1934, and it lasted till the 60s. And of right. course, the Hayes Code is a self-censoring body so that the government went and censor motion pictures. Mm-hmm. So, one of the stipulations in the Hayes Code, and we've talked about all the different ones from other episodes, but the one pertaining to here were two restrictions. Once the Hayes Code was enacted, you could not show illegal drug trafficking. Right. And two, you had to be very careful how you showed drug use. You couldn't show it in any positive light whatsoever. Right. And there always had to be like ramifications of somebody who did
1: drugs. Like they had to be punished for their for their right. deeds. And throughout the Hays Code, for most things that you showed that were considered to be like off-limits.
0: Yeah. Fun things had to have a terrible price. Right. With that being enacted, Cokey comedies and and anything that portrayed drug use as being fun and superheroy and crazy were long gone. Yep. Which brings me over to the later part of the 30s, and I want to talk about marijuana for a second on that point, because right around that time period in the latter part of the 30s, the Marijuana Tax Act was enacted to basically tax marijuana out of the market so no one could buy it anymore, because studies showed that marijuana was a gateway drug. That's of where course. it came from. Yeah. So, of course, if you're going to smoke pot, that means you're vulnerable to start doing heroin and all these yeah. other Controlled substances. Uh, So that's where my mom got that from. Yeah. Yeah. And a good example of that in the movie I have to talk about because it's so fucking ridiculous is Reefer Madness from 1936. Yeah. (laughs) It's hilarious, the movie. Yeah. Especially
1: now, but it had to be laughable then. I'm sure it was. I mean, I'm sure it was probably the equivalent of like a PE and health video, you know, where you're just like, oh my God, who produced this? Nobody? Like,
0: (laughs) well, let me tell you about it (laughs) because actually, originally, it was financed by a church group under the title Tell Your Children. Mm -hmm. And the film was intended to be shown to parents. Parents as a morality tale, attempting to teach them about the dangers of pot. However, soon after the film was shot, it was purchased by Dwayne Esper, who recut it and made it into an exploitation film. So we he showed around the exploitation circuit. I know yeah. you know all this, but in case people don't know it, no, at good. Home, it's good to hear. I love that movie. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And I know you've seen it. Probably most of our audience has seen it. And it basically shows pot ruining the lives of these kids. I mean, somebody smokes pot and then they become like frantic a monster. A monster. And it like
1: jacks everybody up, which is so funny because yeah. that's
0: the opposite of what pot right. does. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's basically what. What Angel dust does, does to you yeah. is what pot it's did like PCP, in the movie, yeah. and like women became prostitutes to get more pot, and it just went spiraled just downhill. Never happened. No. So, it's hilarious. I recommend watching it if you haven't had a chance to see Reefer Madness. I don't think it changed anybody's view on pot or no. it, it's, now it's called it's a classic. Joke. yeah. Fun fact on that is that IMDb says that this film was inspired by the case of Victor Lakeda, who killed his father, mother, two brothers, and sister with an axe in Tampa, Florida in October 16, 1933, allegedly while under the influence of marijuana. Uh-huh. That was what he said. He was under the influence. So, he was declared unfit to stand trial for reasons of insanity psychiatric examination at the Florida State Mental Hospital determined that Lakata suffered from schizophrenia and homicidal tendencies. So the Lakata case was used as propaganda for the passage of the Federal Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, as Mm -hmm. I mentioned before. So they used this case and marijuana made him crazy. And so here we get Reefer Madness. So, moving on to the 40s, past the Great Depression and all that stuff, opiate use was still going on, but the, I couldn't find any films that really talked about addiction or junkies or anything around that time period. The closest I could find was a movie called The Lost Weekend from 1945. Have you ever heard of this movie? That sounds familiar. So, it's kind of a film noir-ish type of movie. It's directed by Billy Wilder, and it stars Ray Milland and Jane Wyman. And it's a film about a writer who is a severe alcoholic and who is struggling with his addiction and is destroying himself and his relationship and everybody around him. So, it's just a self-destructive movie, but it deals with alcohol. But it's the same type of story beats and actions that a junkie would be going through. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the first movies that really tried to present a realistic view of addiction. Mm -hmm. And he goes through all the junkie beats, too. You know, he sells some of his stuff so he can buy more booze and he just alienates everybody and he kind of drinks too much and passes out, you know, so he he ODs, basically. So, Mm So, it fits. It's kind of the junky paradigm I'm trying to, right. to present here. I haven't seen this movie. I've only seen like bits and pieces for the episode, but it was highly regarded when it came out. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards and won four. One was Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Writing Adapted Screenplay. Yeah, wow. So it was a, it was a big deal movie when it came out. On that note, let's move to the 50s because I want to take a look at where we are in regards to drugs. So 1951 saw the implementation of the Boggs Act, which would establish mandatory minimum sentencing for marijuana and opiates. Mm -hmm. Like a first offense could get you two to ten years in jail and a $20,000 fine, which was a lot of money in the 50s. It's a lot of money now. This is basically the beginning of the war on drugs, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. so you see more government crackdown. But one thing you would see in the movies, though, and this was interesting. I didn't know this until I started researching. is You would see more films like Lost Weekend that were very sympathetic to junkies to people Mm -hmm. who are addicted to substances. So the first one I want to talk about on that is the 1955 film called The Man with the Golden Arm. Oh yeah. You know this movie? Yeah, yeah. So it's based on the novel of the same name which tells the story of a drug addict who gets clean while he's in prison but struggles to stay that way once he's back out. And it stars Frank Sinatra, yeah, and, Sinatra, and Kim Novak. So I watched some of this. It's stagey. Mhm. Feels like it was a play or something. Right, right. But it's good. So let's talk about the character Sinatra as a junkie. The drug he's addicted to is never really referenced in the movie, although it's suggested it's heroin, and I think the book explicitly says it's morphine. Mhm. But they never really say it by name. But the film received a strong audience reception when it was released. I guess because, again, it's another one of those real gritty, realistic movies that show the, the struggle of drug abuse. And, you know, it's not exploitive. He's a normal, average person that's dealing with drug abuse. Yeah. And, and it was
1: very controversial at the time to have Sinatra. To, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah To yeah. play that role. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It was a big damn deal. Fun fact on that, and the reason I brought up the Hays Code earlier, is that the director decided to release the film prior to submitting it to the Production Code Authority to get its Hays Code seal of approval. He contended that the film would not entice any viewers to take drugs, because it's definitely an anti-drug film, because it was such negative consequences, which is what you're supposed to show. Mm -hmm. But what happened was, in early December of 1955, the year it was released, the PCA denied the film the code seal, and the decision was upheld upon appeal to the MPAA. As a result, United Artists... Resigned from the NPA at the time. They're like, fuck you. We're not going to be part of the Motion Picture Association. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. They came back a couple years later. But also the National Legion of Decency. You remember those fuckers I talked about yeah, back in Blasphemy? Oddly enough, they showed a disagreement with the PCA ruling by rating the film as a B, meaning just morally objectable. I told you about how they used to rate films. Mm-hmm. Instead of like a C, meaning condemned. So they didn't condemn the film as like the PCA did. Mm -hmm. So nobody agreed with their decision to be dicks about this film because it was a strong anti-drug film. What year was this? This was 1955. Okay, so the Hays Code is starting to fall apart now. Yeah, pretty much. This was actually one of the things that kind of helped make that fall apart. Well, let me talk about the consequences again. So... Because of this ruling, large theater chains stopped showing it or whatever, which was part of the penalty that would happen mm-hmm. with movies like this. But as a result of the overall controversy, the MPAA investigated and revised production codes, allowing later movies more freedom to deeply explore earlier taboo subjects. So, drug abuse, kidnapping, abortion, prostitution—these things that were automatic no-goes—you had limits where you could. They started talk about loosening up. They loosen it up, the, loosened the, it up yeah. some. So you're right. This was one of the films that started to whittle away at the Hays Code. Mm-hmm. And just to emphasize this point one step further just one last thing this thing was nominated for three academy awards one for best actor for sinatra best art direction and best musical score i don't think it won any of them but it was nominated Yep. so it was legit other notable movies that attempted to show the realistic portrayal of junkies in that period were Bigger Than Life from 1956, starring James Mason and Walter Matthau, and it's about a school teacher and a family man whose life spins out of control as he becomes addicted to cortisone, of all things. Yeah, interesting. Then there's one called Monkey on My Back from 1957. It's a biographical film starring Cameron Mitchell, and it's about a world champion boxer and World War II hero who becomes addicted to opiates due to war conditions. So this is an example of someone, as I mentioned, coming back from war who's addicted to painkillers and opiates because of being in the war and of course you know the the film is about him struggling to beat his addictions so it's another realistic take on that so these examples are a sea change from cookie comedies obviously the Hays Code wouldn't allow you to show humorous examples of drug use but to my surprise it didn't go in the direction that Reefer Madness would have someone on drugs which was like a boogeyman who was crazy and was going to rape everybody and turn everybody into junkies the 50s really tried to show a realistic way of how someone can be addicted to these substances so I was pleased to see That, but bringing us into the next decade, it kind of gets a little bit crazy again because now we're heading to the 60s. Right. So, moving on to the 60s, the first half of the 60s is pretty much the 50s. Right. Right. And there's not much to say about any of that stuff. One thing to note about the early 60s is that, and coming back to Sherlock Holmes, is that there was a BBC TV series that came out about Sherlock Holmes that was popular at the time. One of them started Peter Cushing. That was the later one. And then the other one was somebody else. I don't give a shit. But the point I mean bringing that up is that these were popular Sherlock Holmes stories, but they totally dropped the junkie part at all. They mm-hmm. never mentioned his drug abuse at all. They were just like, nope, we're not going to go there. And so you never heard of that. And I think that's why a whole generation of people didn't even know that Sherlock Holmes had a drug addiction because his portrayal on TV and in the movies that were produced earlier on just dropped that subplot altogether. Mm-hmm. That being said, let's go into the later 60s. So, you know, around 1967, drug culture was in full effect and LSD became the big scary drug of choice. Right. Opiates were still around, pot was a big thing, more kids were smoking pot, but when LSD hit, it blew up, and all the movies uh, reflected that, and I'm going to just touch on them now. Movies like Hallucination Generation, 1966, The Trip from 1967, Wild in the Streets from 1968, Riot on the Sunset Strip from 1967, The Psych Out, same year, all of these were LSD freaked out nightmare movies, Mm -hmm. in which case kids would get hooked on LSD, join cults, go on LSD fuel murder sprees. And My favorite. <laughs> and my favorite. And ruined the fucking world. And it was nothing but propaganda and fear. I'm going to leave that there. And I encourage our listeners that if they want to know more about that, go to my Horrible Hippies episode a few seasons back because yeah. I break down all these movies and the drug fear about them and focus mostly all on that. So if you want to pause this and go listen to that and come back, you'll get more than you ever wanted to about LSD in the 60s. So anyway, I'm going to move on to the 70s. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of the 70s, that's when we really, really saw The beginning of the war on drugs. Because you had the passing of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970, Nixon essentially saying in his 1971 speech that drug abuse was public enemy number one, quote unquote, and he pushed for treatment of drug addicts, particularly heroin addicts, because that was a big deal. Because again, just like every war, Vietnam had a lot of people coming back addicted to opiates. Actually, I think there was a huge heroin use problem even in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And so people are getting addicted to heroin over there, coming back here. And there are a couple of movies dealt with that. The first movie I want to talk about from the 70s is a movie called Panic in Needle Park from 1971, starring Al Pacino. Did you ever see this movie? No. It was based on the 1966 novel, of the same name, and basically it portrays the life among a group of heroin addicts who hang out in Needle Park, which was the nickname for Sherman Square on Manhattan's east side.
1: Yeah, I feel like I've been to Needle Park before. It's right <laughs> by have. my apartment. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. So that's just the overall story. And the film is basically a love story between Pacino, who's a young addict and small-time hustler, and Helen, who's this woman that finds him charismatic. She becomes an addict, and life just goes downhill from there. It's in and out of jail. It's melodramatic or whatever. Well, I want to bring it up as a junkie character because this is one of the first and probably best examples of that junkie who's charismatic, good-looking guy, charming, but also like a crook and a terrible junkie who can resort to doing terrible things. Mm-hmm. You know, So instead of just being a family man who's suffering or being some crazy street urchin, now you've got a really likable guy who under any other circumstances is like, wow, he's charming and great, but he's a fucking junkie. And you'll see more of this and more variations of this going forward. But I think it's the first good example of that type of junkie. But that being said, I don't see much other movies that focus on addicts in the 70s that I could really pinpoint. One thing I want to note, though, in mid-70s is a movie called The 7% Solution, which was adapted from the book of the same name. And that was specifically a movie that came out about Sherlock Holmes' drug addiction. So it was like a fictionalized movie where Sherlock Holmes goes to get help for his addiction by none other than Sigmund Freud, which is kind of funny and ironic. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So let's go to the 80s. I'm going to leave the 70s. That's really the only thing I want to talk about in the 70s, because the 80s is really where... things kind of started to get interesting as we go forward. The 80s was Nancy Reagan's Just Say No to Drugs. Mm. I know you remember that shit. worst, yeah. That was the era where people came to your high school and talked to you about drugs. Yeah, the D.A.R.E. program. Yeah, D.A.R.E. program, all that stuff. You were just constantly being hit by anti-drug propaganda. But what's interesting about that is now you bring in the children aspect of it, whereas drug abuse touched on having problems of children like marijuana and reefer madness. But these movies before, it was all adults suffering from it. But now it's like children are going to get addicted to morphine or whatever. And they're going to smoke pot first, and they're going to be addicted to heroin. As my mom explain to me. Uh, That's right, yeah. But anyway, that whole thing was a big deal. And, of course, cocaine made a big comeback in the 80s. It sure did. (laughs) (laughs) So the Nancy Reagan thing was the first big thing about the 80s. The second big thing, speaking of cocaine, was, can you guess?
1: The second big thing.
0: Oh, crack. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Slate's like, oh, crack.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, crack. It's
0: my second favorite. Yeah. So, crack was basically considered the unyuppy cocaine because it yeah. was cheap to make and highly addictive, anyone could afford it, and people got hooked on it right away. So now you have a new type of junkie called the crackhead or crack fiend. And that was the big scary thing of the latter part of the 80s. Cause I say 85 is when crack really started getting popular. Mm-hmm. From then on, it was all like crack cocaine's big deal and law enforcement really pushed on that. And so that really gets into mainstream media in the early part of the 90s. We'll talk about crackheads more. Mm-hmm. But I wanna talk about the two movies from the 80s that I think really stand out as junkie characters and shoes. The first one is the batshit crazy classic film Scarface from 1983. Mm-hmm. So that's directed by Brian De Palma. Of course it's a remake of the 1932 film in the same name. Very loose remake. Uh, the film tells the story of Cuban refugee Tony Montana who arrives in 80s Miami with nothing and rises to become a powerful drug kingpin. He's completely fucking unhinged in this movie. Yeah. I like this movie. Yeah I like Scarface too. <laughs> yeah it's, it's not good. my
1: favorite in the world but I like it.
0: And it shows how more powerful Tony gets the more drugs he's wrapped up in. He's always doing coke. He's getting more paranoid so he just starts Losing his fucking mind. Till the film basically ends with him defending his house behind a desk with a mountain of cocaine and a fucking machine gun shooting bad guys yeah. or people trying to kill him. It's the most blatant 80s symbolism of excess. And drug craziness. And it's not supposed to be a sympathetic performance. Like, you're not supposed to feel bad for Tony Montana, but it's amazing how many people, like, relate to yeah, that Yeah, people think that he's, like, the coolest, like, boss, you know? Right. And it's like,
1: uh, he was really fucked up.
0: Like, yeah, he was really fucked up. But that's a good example, and I'll bring this up later too, what we have as the anti-hero junkie character. You know, before they're just victims and people, but they're not considered really anti-heroes. Right. Where you'll see more examples of that as we go forward. The second movie I want to talk about from the 80s is Less Than Zero from 1987. I never saw that. So it's loosely based on the Brett Easton Ellis novel the same name and it stars Andrew McCarthy Jamie Gertz and Robert Downey Jr. as the drug addict friend of theirs. Mm -hmm. The film is basically a look at rich kids from LA and they all kind of have a plotless storyline or whatever but the focus I want to talk about is uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character because his name's Julian and he I guess had a record company or something that went bankrupt. You know, He's a young kid, I guess early 20s, he ends up getting addicted to heroin and he owes this drug dealer like $50,000, you know. But this is an interesting character because before you've seen, you know, okay, all these junkies who are middle class or whatever, but you've never seen like a rich, white privileged kid essentially like turning tricks for heroin, which is what you get in this movie. He basically gets pimped out by his drug dealer to all these rich people to have sex to pay off his debt. Oh, really? Yeah, and he just kind of sinks lower and lower into his heroin addiction. He tries to get out, he can't, and then, spoiler for the movie, he... He ends up dying at the end so mm-hmm. it's, it's a tragic story for robert johnny jr but it was also kind of original in that you never really saw that type of kid right. go to those lengths for heroin so the movie's okay i'm not a big fan of it but i think it's very indicative of that time period mm-hmm. and shows an interesting junkie character next movie i want to talk about the one last one from the 80s is drugstore cowboy from 1989 directed by gus van sant that stars matt Dillon and kelly Preston. oh and heather graham's in that yeah i, I just watched that. that again That's did you what do you think that. of that it's
1: good it's a good Good movie. yeah, yeah.
0: it 's based i think somewhat on a true story of uh, this couple that in one thousand nine hundred and seventy one going around robbing drug stores and hospitals to feed their drug addiction, yeah. Of course, it gets busted, and it's a bunch of different twists and turns. But it's based on a novel and supposedly an autobiographical novel by James Fogel, so mm-hmm. supposedly it's a true story. But yeah. it's it's more of a Bonnie and Clyde kind of representation, you know? It's, it's a little sadder than Bonnie and Clyde, but... Yeah, know, yeah, 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 I think,
1: was that his first film? Gus Van Sant- I think so. Yeah,
0: it's either first or second. It's yeah. a, a very
1: well done and very interesting movie.
0: Yeah, it's a very good movie. Yeah. But it's a good piece to show these junky characters, mm-hmm. because, again, they're sympathetic characters, but they're also a, a couple who just have to be wrapped up in drug addiction. Yep. All right. Let's move to the 90s because mm-hmm. I've been wanting to talk about crackheads that's <laughs> terrible. But the crackhead character really came to its own in the 90s. Yeah, sure. So I want to talk about that. The first movie I want to talk about that deals with a crackhead in any way worth mentioning is Jungle Fever from 1991. Mm-hmm. Yes, so. Definitely. Yeah, Spike Lee movie starring Wesley Snipes, Samuel Jackson, Holly Berry, and Ossie Davis is in that. And it's about the beginning and end of an extramarital affair slash interracial relationship against the backdrop of New York City in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And so the deal with that is uh, Wesley Snipes is the main character, and his brother is Samuel Jackson, who is a crackhead. He's totally addicted to drugs, and his crackhead girlfriend is Holly Berry. Right. So this is an interesting take because Samuel Jackson's fucking hilarious in this movie. Mm -hmm. He's an unapologetic crackhead, so he's very personable, he's very funny, but then there's scenes where he's basically robbing his parents and being threatening to get money for crack. Right. You know, so you've got this manipulative, personable, but dangerous crackhead, and Sam Jackson really does a great job. Halle Berry holds her own too, but she's way too good looking to look like a crackhead. (laughs) She's way too pretty in this movie to be addicted to crack. Uh I'm sorry. Right. I mean, Sam Jackson is way too healthy in this movie to look like he's addicted to crack, but he can look deranged and does a good job. So it's a great movie, great character. And of course, it gets really dark for Sam Jackson's character, if you remember the movie. I do, vaguely. Yeah. Don't you want me to spoil it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, fuck it. All right, so he's, again, going through his parents' house to rob them. Now, he's not being violent, necessarily, but he is being very aggressive, trying to steal money from his mother. His father finally comes in, played by Ossie Davis, and he's just like, I can't do anything for you. And he basically shoots Sam Jackson and kills him. Yeah. So it's really tragic but that whole, like, jokey, kidding around, you know, crackhead character, Sam Jackson really invented a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And you'll see more of that. So it's a great performance. Oh, uh, look here, babe, bro. Uh, I'm a little light right now. Could you, like, let me hold some change? Mm-hmm. No. What? Come on, you could do me this one solid. What? Well, would you rather I go out and rob some elderly person? Steal? Well, either way, I'm gonna get high. I really hate having to resort to knocking elderly people in the head for their money. But I'll do it. I'll do it. You know I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. it. You know I'll do it. I like getting high. Uh, I'm a crackhead. I like getting high. I'm a crackhead. Opera. Next film is New Jack City from the same year that's directed by Mario Van Peebles starring Ice-T and Chris Rock. Yeah. And a bunch of people. Oh, and Wesley Snipes is in this too. But mm-hmm. it's about cops who are trying to take down a drug dealer. And Chris Rock plays a kid named Pookie who's also a junkie. He's a crackhead too. And he does a Fairly good job. And he's also <laughs> in the same vein as Sam Jackson in that he's likable and he's funny. And he's, he's basically he's Chris Rock. He's Chris right. Rock being Chris Rock. Then when the drama comes where he's trying to quit and not smoke crack. And yeah, I had you watch that clip. That scene is silly. It's really not great. It's kind of unintentionally funny.
1: Yeah. So for the audience out there, he like holds it up, holds the pipe up, and then he's like, no! And he like <laughs> pushes it away and then he like goes to take it and then he throws it. You know, it's yeah. like, that's not the way that addiction really works. No. Like, have you ever seen an alcoholic, like, yell at alcohol? <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> get away from get me, Berman! You yeah, ruined no. my life! Yeah, yeah, Like, no.
1: it's not, that's not the way that that happens. It doesn't it's happen at all. No. It's kind of a funny scene, unintentionally. And it's
0: unintentionally funny.
1: It's very after school special way of treating uh, a crack pipe. Yeah, it is. And I watched some of the
0: movie again, and it, the whole thing is kind of after school So special. I'm guessing that New Jack City doesn't really hold up very well. It really doesn't yeah. hold up that well. But again, Chris Rock had his place in the funny crackhead. Some other standouts real quick I just want to talk about is uh, Menaceous Society had a crackhead in it. And this is the biggest takeaway from this is a line and I'll say it in just a second. But, you know, Minnesota Society is a movie about this group of kids and all the trouble they get in there. And one of them is a sociopath named o who's mm-hmm. a drug dealer and he kills a bunch of people And he's played by Lorenz Tate. Anyway, this one scene, this crackhead comes up to him and wants to get some rock or some money or whatever for crack. And he's like, get away from me. And he's like, I'll suck your dick for crack. Mm -hmm. And then he goes to get shot. But that line is is, suck your dick for crack or whatever is now part of that pantheon. Right. You know, If you ain't got no money, you just asked out. Come on, man, come on, man, wait, 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 man, man,
1: man, man, I suck your dick. Come on, man, just hook me up. What the fuck come you on. just say, nigga? Man, I said I suck your dick. Come on, man, let's get... Fuck.
0: Damn. Suck on that, you bitch-ass trick. So the 90s, at least the first half of the 90s, was really the era of the crackhead, at least in cinema. Yeah. And so that's where you really got that crackhead character. What you would see in the latter part of the 90s, though, were movies that would come back to the heroine antihero. First one I want to talk about is Basketball Diaries from 1995. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do we see that together? I don't think we did, actually. So anyway, that movie, for those who don't know, stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Wahlberg in that as well. And the film is an adaptation of Jim Carroll's autobiographical work of the same name. It tells the story of Carroll's teenage years as a promising high school basketball player who develops an addiction to heroin and all the things that he goes through. The movie was really controversial when it came out, Mm -hmm. because I guess there was a scene where he fantasized about shooting up a classroom in that movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happened is some kids shot up some people a year or two later, and they claimed that this movie inspired them to do it, or at least the movie was being sued because it was claimed that he was inspired to do it. I think it was settled out of court or whatever. But then when Columbine happened, this movie was brought up again as being part of the problem for that, too. So it was a very controversial movie, but... You know, again, I think this one and the next movie I'm about to talk about are really where that heroin antihero came into their own. And the next movie I want to talk about is, can you guess? Came out just a year after. So that would have been 1996, mm-hmm. and it was a
1: heroin antihero. <laughs> are you trying to be funny? No, give me a hint. Train spotting. Oh, train spotting. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, yeah, Trainspotting, which is probably one of the most famous junkie movie of the last 20, yeah, 30 I years. Yeah, I do
1: have to tell you, though, you know, everybody when I was in high school was obsessed with that movie, and I, it just didn't hit me. Like, I saw it, and I remembered seeing it, and I yeah. love some things about it. Obviously, the toilet scene is my favorite when mm-hmm. he crawls into the toilet, yeah, and great. I thought that it was really interesting, but it just, it was one of those movies that just didn't quite hit me the same way that it hit everybody right. else. It was everybody's favorite movie, and everybody had the soundtrack, and I was like, hmm, it was fine.
0: I think the soundtrack was pretty good. I don't know. It remember.
1: was it was it was it's a
0: great movie i mean (laughs) i've
1: seen it in my adult years and been like you should have been into that it's a very good movie you know how i am about things when everybody gets obsessed with something i just i'm just kind of like i don't like i don't don't care i don't care yeah 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 Yeah.
0: so this movie is directed by danny boyle for those who haven't seen it i feel like everybody's seen this movie everybody's seen this movie but it's based on the book by irving welsh of the same name stars ewan mcgregor And a bunch of other people. And it follows a group of heroin addicts in an economically depressed area of Edinburgh, Scotland. Yep. And how they go through life or whatever. And it shows, you know, Ewan trying to... His name is Mark Renton in the movie. Tries to beat addiction. And he has to go through detox... Which is also another great scene in the movie. And we've talked about it before in Bad that Babies, baby, yeah. where a dead baby is crawling across the ceiling and turns its head and looks at him and falls on him. That's a kind of a scary scene. It's yeah, great. Yeah. It's got a lot of good moments. I can see why the movie as a whole didn't really appeal to you. I think I really liked it when I first saw it, but I haven't seen it a lot. So yeah. it wasn't something I repeatedly needed to see. No, no. But it's a well-done movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. About I just addiction. Like, mm. I really think it was a strong example of the heroine antihero and that this, that this is the good Guy in the movie, but they have these demons that they're chasing. And again, Mark Renton, along with DiCaprio, follows that whole charismatic, nice guy, good-looking guy who you know is charming, but is a fucking dirty junkie who's diarrhea is the bed, and diarrhea is the bed. I don't think that was his character, but either way, that was... Funny. Oh, yeah, it was the other Ewan. But either... Yeah. Everybody in this movie's name is Ewan. Ewan, yeah. But again, it's that whole thing where likable guys, decent guys, and then they're just dirty junkies, you know? So, Trainspotting has a sequel. I haven't seen the sequel... I'm not going to really talk about it much. I know it's just catching up with these characters years later. I'm sure heroin plays a role, but it didn't have the same impact. Mm -hmm. And it's still not one that's like, oh, if you want to see a movie about junkies, if there's a list of movies about junkies, the sequel's not on it. And I know it's still new. It's only been a couple of years, but I feel like it came and went and that was it. So I'm not going to talk about that, but it exists. So my next movie I want to talk about, because at that time, now that Train Spotting's big, there's other junkie movies that come out of note in the 90s. Uh, The next one I want to talk about is Gridlocked from 1997. You ever heard of this one? So it's a movie that starred Tupac Shakur and Tim Roth and Tanny Newton as well. And so it's about these two junkies that are in a band and Tanny Newton, who's in it, she overdoses on heroin. And so they're like, we need to get help. So the, the whole movie is about them trying to dodge cops and drug dealers and everything and get into rehab so it's a pretty decent movie it didn't really stick around long enough but at the mm-hmm. time it was you know it was one of those movies where, you know where you had these charismatic junky characters trying to accomplish something and the movie had a lot to say about the system and how it's hard to get help mm-hmm. so that's cool but it's the movie never really stuck Yeah, sad fact this film paid tribute to star Tupac Shakur who was murdered four months prior to the film's release oh, okay. so this was the last movie he was in mm-hmm. the last movie I want to talk about in the 90s was Permanent Midnight did you ever see this movie? it starred mm-hmm. Ben Stiller the film is based based on Jerry Stahl's autobiographical book of the same name and tells the story of Stahl's rise from a small television writer to his success for making up to like five grand a week or whatever in the 80s. He wrote things for 30-something, Moonlighting, and "Alf." This guy (laughs) was a TV writer, but then it just shows how his drug use just fucked up his whole career. It was kind of interesting casting to have Ben Stiller, a funny guy, play this tragic role. This is less of the anti-hero thing and is going more into the straight up personal tragedy. Mm -hmm. So this junkie is just a tragic figure, which leads me to the 2000s at this point. I'm leaving the 90s behind, but... This leads me directly into 2000 with my next movie, which is one of the bleakest fucking things you will ever see. What is it? Requiem for a Dream. Requiem for a Dream from 2000.
1: I remember seeing this like right at the beginning of 2000 in the theater in New York. And oh, man. <laughs> it was amazing
0: it was I saw it in Florida I was living down in Florida and I watched it in the theater because it's a small indie theater in Tallahassee that just played whatever and they played Requiem and I went and watched that and I'm like I just want to die now oh I felt great <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it I've was seen it wonderful. like 10
1: times, too. It yeah. always turns up on the list of movies that you can only watch one time. And I'm like, I've seen it 50 times.
0: I mean, I've definitely seen it more than once. <laughs> but I mean, I've only seen it once in the theater. But other people in the theater, everyone was this horrified. Yeah, it was great. It was great actually. Oh,
1: I love it. I, I love feeling that awful about something. It just <laughs> makes me feel alive. <laughs> like when everybody is fucked at the end. Yeah, I just love that. <laughs> It just makes (laughs) me feel great <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking like i mean it's the same way that like people that love horror movies they like to be scared it makes you feel alive right. to be scared and terrified and you know stuff like that and when something is just so sad and
0: awful i just love it yeah and this is basically a horror movie yeah yeah but anyway let me, let me tell people about it who haven't seen it first of all you do really need to see it Everybody it, stars... it yeah okay so it was directed by darren aronofsky it stars ellen burston jared leto jennifer connelly and marlon wayans and it's based on the novel of the same name by Herbert Selby Jr. It's amazing how many of these drug things are adapted from books. Yeah, Some are autobiographies, so it's real tragedy involved here, but this is not. This is just a novel. However, the film kind of deals with four different stories of addiction, three of which are heroin with these group of friends, which are Marlon Wayans, Jennifer Collin, and Jared Leto, but the third one is Ellen Burstyn and she gets addicted to diet pills. She's just, she's Jared Leto's mom in the movie and she finds out that she might be able to go on this game show and so she gets prescribed these diet pills but she basically goes to the doctors like I want to lose weight and they're like here take speed. Yeah. And so they don't give her instruction or nothing. She starts taking the speed and she gets addicted to it and loses her fucking mind. Yeah. Meanwhile parallel to that you've got Jared Leto's group where they're, they're trying to make like a big score to get through heroin and stuff and that goes to shit. Jennifer Connelly ends, ends up getting addicted and next thing You know, like the last 20 minutes of the film is just like there's like a peak right before that where it looks like everyone's going to have everything that they want. Yeah. And then everything just drops straight down. Yeah. So I don't know. Should I spoil all of this? Everybody. Anybody that's listening to this podcast has has probably seen this movie. So, you know, Jared Leto gets gangrene in in his arm from shooting up heroin and he gets his fucking arm cut off and in like the jail hospital. Yeah. Marlon Wayans gets thrown in jail. And so he's detoxing in jail. In a like racist southern jail. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Jennifer Connelly basically becomes like a sex worker and does the famous ass to ass scene with a giant dildo right in the middle. Yeah. So what are we now? terrible but yeah she becomes like a dead-eyed junkie yeah doing sex shows to make money and prostituting herself to make money and then ellen burston poor woman she loses her mind goes to the studio in her red dress that she wanted to wear on this show and basically just goes crazy there and they're just like they have to put her in her mental hospital she gets electroshock therapy, yeah, which
1: is excruciating yeah and, and she basically wonderful uh, yeah
0: yeah <laughs> if you're me And the movie just like hits on all of these things. It it shows it over and over, her getting shocked, and it cuts to everyone's downward spiral. Yeah. At the last 20 minutes. It's great. It's really well done. The direction's (laughs) great, but it's just like horrible. But I want to bring up this movie because it starts out with your junkies being the anti hero junkies, right? They're kind of like in train spotting. Mm -hmm. What happens is the whole anti hero thing just goes to hell. Their lives are spiral and they're nothing but just like lost souls. But Ellen Burston's a good example because that's a junkie you don't see in movies much and that's why right. this is probably the last movie I'm going to talk about in dealing with this topic because it's really relevant to now where you have somebody who's just a nice old lady and so she doesn't even realize that she's a junkie you know she's not trying to get high she's just trying to get on the show because she's lonely you know and this is this will make her happy Right. and then everything goes to hell for her too and I think that's relevant to now and the fact that now we're in the midst of an opioid crisis where a lot of people are being prescribed drugs that they are misusing or shouldn't be taken anyway. And they're not your street urchins. They're not your crackheads. They're not the antiheroes or somebody who's trying to get high. They're just regular people who are using these for other reasons. And they're being misprescribed and misused. Yeah.
1: So it's also an issue of people that don't have insurance, people that work in industries of where they get hurt, like construction. And that's why it's more prevalent in certain places, because they'll hurt themselves, they need to go back to work tomorrow. And so they will take somebody else's, you know, pill, or they'll borrow something from someone, that's the gateway drug. It's kind of funny that the whole time we all just kept thinking that marijuana was this huge gateway drug, and it's not really. It's prescription medication is the gateway drug, because then all of a sudden, there's a run, you can't find any anymore, and heroin is dirt cheap. And at that point, you're addicted to it. You're not a drug addict, because these drugs are legal. Prescription drugs are legal. And then all of a sudden, heroin becomes the only way that you can feed that addiction. And that's what heroin addicts say, too, is that it's not necessarily that they're just always trying to get a heroin rush they're trying to feed the addiction so that they're not going through withdrawal the withdrawal
0: is the worst part of heroin i've never done heroin i don't know this but that's what i hear anyway right and i've heard the same thing and that's a good point too when you bring up the fact that these are the new gateway drugs you know these days nobody gives a shit about pot right anyone who thinks that pot is some sort of demonized thing now is totally delusional no one gives two shits about pot cigarettes are looked at worse than pot now. Mm -hmm. And they are fucking bad. But yeah, that's the thing about heroin. And and the interesting part, too, is... Volatile drugs like crack and meth, which are extremely dangerous to make or are so addictive and crazy have kind of burned themselves out. Meth's still around. but It's more rural and everything crack is still around But it's really not the heights it reached in the 80s and 90s. It's pretty much gone, right? But heroin is big because it's just
1: crazy that right. that's back because that was one of those things that you thought you know Nobody needs to do heroin. That's one that can just go away. Right. And now that's the problem. Yeah, it's crazy
0: That is crazy. So tying this back into Requiem. Okay Case, she's addicted to speed, but still she could be anybody's grandmother who's addicted to opioids, right you know yeah, and, absolutely and so I think that's kind of where I want to end this. There are some things in later in 2000s that are interesting to talk about as far as addicts and stuff and I want to bring it back around to the Sherlock Holmes because there's been three iterations of Sherlock Holmes in the 2000s. One was the Robert Downey Jr. movies directed by Guy Ritchie Guy Ritchie. And two are TV shows. One is a TV show on American TV called Elementary, and the other one's a BBC show called Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm-hmm. So the movie with Robert Downey Jr. doesn't talk about drugs at all. They don't allude to it. Both of those shows actually bring up Sherlock Holmes's drug addiction. Oh, wow. So it's part of that narrative. So it's just interesting how that comes back around, too, where we're more willing to accept the fact that these heroes have these drug problems, which mm-hmm. I think is a good thing if you look at it yeah, that way. Sure. You know, maybe in the 50s and 60s when drugs and people... People who are using drugs were kind of demonized, especially in the early '90s too, with crackheads and everything else. Good guys didn't do drugs back then, right? Right. But we can approach it now because we realize it's a problem that anybody can have. It's not. It's not a character flaw. It's not somebody who's poor. Anybody can be addicted to drugs, Mm -hmm. and so anyone could be a fucking junkie. Right. That's where I'm gonna end this topic. What do you think? Yeah. Good. Good. Anyway, I left out a lot of movies. I'm sure there's plenty of movies that our listeners will say, "Hey, you should have talked about that." And if there is something you want to holler at me about as far as a junkie movie or one of your favorite, Junkie representations in a movie. Please feel free to email that to us, or or if know. you
1: are a junkie and you just are mad that Tom called you a junkie the whole time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't know if you were going to address that or not, of whether it was like, oh, are we allowed to say junkie anymore? But I thought it was a really interesting episode. You know that you kind of showed an, an evolution. You know because it is. It's like it was a super taboo thing. You know a while ago, and yeah. now it's something that we hear about every single day. And it's also like you know the whole just say no to drugs thing. That didn't work. It, didn't it doesn't work. work. Things don't work that way. No, they don't and, work that. Way. It's not that easy, you know, to deal with. So uh, I thought it was a great episode.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, let me add one last thing to that. What I found interesting is that it was a taboo thing, but even way before that, it was like something to joke about. It's like, eh, cocaine is fun, right? Yeah. yeah. We had a good time with cocaine, and then it's like, no, nah, it's it's kind of fucked up. Yeah. And these drugs are fucked up. Yeah. So they need to be taken seriously, but they definitely need to be talked about because they are a real problem. So yeah. that evolution was interesting to me. Well, it's a joke. It's nothing. It's something, but yeah, just say no doesn't do shit. Yeah. You need to approach it and deal with it because it isn't. Just the bad kids that are doing drugs or being addicted and that was one of the things that i loved about requiem for a dream too was was her
1: story i I don't give a shit about jared leto and fucking (laughs) ass to ass i don't care (laughs) i loved her story because it it wasn't just about drug addiction it was just about addiction in general yeah and that's about how you know you start something and then you don't know that you're getting addicted to it
0: until it's too late Yeah. Well, that's all I got for this one. Yeah. Thanks for uh, coming back, y'all. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye. All right, we're going to go get high. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com, where you can find the links to some of the movies we talked about today, and also be sure to check us out on Facebook and Twitter, where we share a lot of additional content.
1: And if you like the show or have any comments or suggestions, please drop us an email at slumsoffilmhistory at gmail.com or write us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies.
0: But the new part of this is that it really drug in children into the drug problem. Whereas before, it really drug in children. Uh, Sorry. Should I keep that?